Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am your co-host, Scott Parkin, today in the, uh, actually, the Tahoe National Forest. Uh, taking a little time off here. Uh, I'm very excited about today's episode. And as always, I am joined by uh, Bob Bazanko from Houston. Uh, I wish I was in the Tahoe Forest. Uh, and as always, we thank you for listening and, and watching and ask that you um, share, you know, in whatever format platform you partake in the Green Red podcast, uh, subscribe to the YouTube page, uh, follow us on Facebook and, and all the other social media and um please let people know we we operate by word of mouth and uh you know we really do appreciate all of you who support us and as far as support goes i also want to thank the the recent additions to our m19 brigade on uh, patreon uh, we have a small but mighty growing uh, base of donors on our patreon page and if you would like to join our patreon m19 brigade uh please uh, check us out at patreon.com backslash green red podcast. And then if you want to just make a one-time donation, you can go to greenredpodcast.org and hit that support button. Uh, and so with without further ado, I'm going to introduce the uh, our guest in our episode. And so um, to be honest, the intro I'm about to do is not going to do justice to the decades of work that our guest has done. So today we're joined by Randy Hayes, the co-founder of Rainforest Action Network. Hey, Randy. Uh, Randy is a author, filmmaker, and environmentalist as the co-founder and director at Rainforest Action Network. Randy is a, a veteran of many high visibility corporate accountability campaigns and has advocated for the rights of indigenous people throughout the world. Uh, he is currently the executive director of Foundation Earth and a consultant to the World Future Council based in Washington, D.C. Uh, but I think the like I said, that the, the body of work is so much, I, I'm not gonna go into all of it, but the, the one quote that I wanted to say to describe Randy is that he was described in the pages of the Wall Street Journal as an environmental pit bull, which I actually feel like says it all. And it's the, it leads to the legacy of Rainforest Action Network. Um, and so what we're gonna be talking about today is the a little bit of the history of Rainforest Action Network, which was founded in 1985 by Randy and Mike Rosell. And then we're gonna talk a little bit about the state of the environment and the collapse of the biosphere and uh, topics like that. But I wanna say welcome to Green and Red, Randy. Good to be here with you. And so uh, Randy, maybe just to, just to kind of start off is, do you wanna tell us a little bit about how you got started both on your path uh, in doing an environmental work, defending the rainforest, defending communities in the rainforest, uh, and, then, and then we can also go into how Rainforest Action Network got started. Well, from zero to eight, I, I lived uh, uh, in the woods of West Virginia, northern West Virginia, not far really from Pittsburgh. And then eight to 16 in the swamps of Florida, just south of the green swamp in the central part of the state. And I had pet alligators. So, you know, I was uh, a little more ensconced in nature than current generations of people. Uh, and that certainly had a lot to do, a lot to do with it. Uh, but as well, uh, my great-grandmother was, was half Blackfoot Indian uh, in West Virginia. 
and I didn't grow up as an Indian at all, but um, I always had a, a reverence for uh, uh, their history and their worldview in terms of nature. So when I graduated college from Bowling Green State University in 1973, I'd figured out by my senior year that it was sort of ecology uh, and nature was my calling. And so I moved to the West and, you know, through a, a series of uh, interesting experiences, we'll just say, I was introduced to the Hopi elders. And I spent a lot of uh, 10 years, 73 to 83, as kind of secretary and chauffeur to, to those uh, native women and men who had great wisdom and long-term vision. And really that was my graduate training in sustainability and deep long-term thinking. And uh, so uh, on the heels of that, after 10 years in the desert, I decided I needed a, an ecosystem shift. So I started to focus on tropical rainforests. And, you know, um, a great story is about how you first met Mike Rosell, who you later founded Rainforest Action Network with at the, at the Glen Canyon Dam. If, could you share a little bit of that story? Sure. I was um, uh, making a, a documentary film on coal and uranium mining and synthetic fuels, sort of like tar sands, but oil shale on the Colorado Plateau in the southwest. And, and Toby McLeod and Glenn Switkus and I were to interview Edward Abbey the writer who wrote the Monkey Wrench Gang. And as we went to meet Ed Abbey, he, he essentially introduced uh, me to Mike Rozelle at one of the founding events of Earth First, which was a quite inspired movement of uh, wilderness lovers who were about to do a stunt because Edward Abbey told us to uh, show up, uh, not where he lived in Arizona, but to show up at the Glen Canyon Dam, and there's a campsite near there called Lone Rock. And he said, something is going to happen. Plan to stay a few days. That's all he said. So what was about to happen was Roselle and Dave Foreman and others from early Earth First days were about to unfurl a black plastic stripe, um, you know, hundreds of feet long down the side of the, the dam, the Glen Canyon Dam, to symbolize a crack in the dam, which symbolized freeing the river and which symbolized a statement of respect for nature and the ways of nature. And so that's uh, uh, good old Ed Abbey introduced me to that gang and I'm uh, quite thankful for it. Right on, that's a, and that's a, it's like one of the all time classic early environmental earth first actions, um, the cracking of the, of the Glen yeah, Canyon Dam. A nine minute sort of cult film called The Cracking of Glen Canyon Dam with Edward Abbey and Earth First uh, that one can find on on uh, the internet and watch. It's uh, got a surprise ending, so don't, don't <laughs> quit. <clears throat> that was in the early 70s or early 80s then? Yeah, that was around 79, 80. I okay. Think. So this is a time when there's a lot of stuff going on in the aftermath of the 60s when you had, you know, kind of civil rights, anti-war movements, all that. So when you start to see these other movements, did you have a sense you were part of something bigger? You were kind of hopeful that, that this would go, you know, become yeah, a big the, idea? The original Earth Day happened when I was in, in college and undergraduate at Bowling Green State University. And, you know, it was the time of the Vietnam War and... Uh, my very first arrest for uh, civil disobedience, so to speak, was uh, we drove um, the Army ROTC Reserve Officer Training Corps off of the field at an awards ceremony in statement of our feelings against the Vietnam War. 
right? So um, the environmental movement and, and Earth Day was launched, the whole Earth catalog came out, with, which was this sort of integrated way of thinking and an inspired vision. And I'm sitting around with my best buddy in college, a guy whose nickname was Droop because of his droopy eyes and long blonde hair. And, and I said, look, I don't want to work for a, as a cog in the wheel of a machine going, uh, going nowhere. And, and he said, it's not a, a, a machine going nowhere, meaning the industrial revolution. He said, it's, you know, people are cogs in the wheel of a machine going somewhere really bad. And he said, and I'm just not gonna, that's what Drew declared to me. And I just, as a senior in undergraduate school said, well, then I'm not either. You know, and so uh, that launched my post-college career. Uh, looking at RAN, uh, when you started RAN, what what were some of your intentions in, in starting the Rainforest Action Network, and, and and maybe what were some of your your influences when you decided to do that, both domestically and abroad? I guess you could say. I had rented a desk at the Friends of the Earth office in San Francisco, and that was their national headquarters in the days of David Brower, the great David Brower, who uh, built Friends of the Earth, but also built the Sierra Club and subsequently Earth Island Institute, you know, and stopped the damming of the Grand Canyon and many other great things. Uh, but um, I was kind of a wannabe environmental activist, and I paid to have a desk at an environmental group's headquarters. <laughs> and. Uh, interestingly, I had met uh, native leaders from tropical rainforests while I was uh, near the Grand Canyon in the desert with, with the Hopi. A lot of native people from around the world do a pilgrimage to Hopi, which is uh, perhaps the oldest tribe in, in North America, if not the entire Western Hemisphere, right? And, and so I'd gotten interested in, in tropical rainforests uh, it was similar issues that I was fighting in the Southwest in the sense of, of uh, mining companies and inequitable treatment from governments and, and such. And so uh, when I essentially relocated a little more permanently in San Francisco, uh, I proposed to Friends of the Earth that they start a rainforest uh, department and hire me to run it. <laughs> I had been doing research on something called the People of the Earth Project, which was uh, a directory of support groups for indigenous peoples around the world. Uh, that was part of my work back then. And I had a hard time raising funds for it, but at the point I mostly talked about tropical rainforest, I had an easier time raising funds for it. And at a certain point, uh, Friends of the Earth was in minor meltdown and threw Brower out of the organization. And um, I'm sitting there after hours with Mike Rozelle and we're in the back corner of the office and after hours there were hardly anybody there except Mike and I and Mike would usually go out and get a six pack of beer and come back and and we'd start talking through the issues and working on projects so we're sitting there with a six pack of beer and I said well this effort to uh, advance things at Friends of the Earth is going nowhere I think we should start our own organization and he said, what do you want to call it? And the rented desk next to me was Pesticide Action Network. And, but my you know, fervor at the time was rainforest. And I looked at Mike and I, just as he was popping a beer and, and I said, Rainforest Action Network. Well, Mike had been an artist. 
you know, or is an artist and a, a quite clever one. But these are the early days of, of uh, you know, there weren't laser printers <laughs> and there was press on type. And he pulled out some press on type and on, on a blank piece of uh, photocopying paper, he put on the top of it in big bold print, Rainforest Action Network. I went into the photocopy room and Xeroxed about 15 copies. And because I was a rentee, I was supposed to write the number of copies on the wall and be charged at the end of the month. But I was pissed off at Friends of the Earth at the time. In fact, I had money on account with them that I never got back. <laughs> and so I didn't write it down. That was my act of protest on the day of the birthing of Rainforest Action Network. And, and I came back and I, and, and, uh, I slapped the pile of photocopied letterhead on on the desk and i said we've got letterhead mike and he said and he popped another beer for us and uh that was it the birth of rainforest action network you know uh it's interesting you talking about the the story about you know the first it, it's an act of defiance the the founding of rainforest action network is an act of defiance around at friends of the earth and i'm i'm wondering if you have had intentions on how to push uh other like main, more mainstream environmental groups, you know, to left or to be, you know, more responsive well, I, to these issues. I quickly healed my ways with with uh, Friends of the Earth, which is, in fact, I work closely now with with Brent Blackwelder, who was the president of Friends of the Earth U.S. for you know many many years, and, and a great man. Uh, and and in fact, Friends of the Earth had an international network that Brower had set up, and so. With the tropical rainforest issue, uh, not not many groups around the world were working on it. There were scientists at the IUCN, the International Union of Conservation and Nature. There were some people at groups like uh, World Wildlife Fund uh, that were working on tropical rainforest, but mostly in the sense of, of science and research and less in the sense of advocacy. There was some uh, work going on at the time, fighting the World Bank and some of their, you know, uh, derelict ways, funding hydroelectric dams in the Amazon and such. And so we pulled together a mailing list of groups that were working on it. And we called together a three-day strategy session of kind of a who's who, not just in the United States, but from around the world. We had people from Canada uh, and, and we had people from, from Europe. Uh, we had Charles Secret, who was running the Rainforest Campaign for Friends of the Earth UK. Uh, mostly an anti-timber campaign at the time. But we also had native leaders from North America. Winona LaDuke was there, for instance. John Trudell was at the founding conference of the Rainforest Action Network, a woman named Nelak Butler. But we had native people also uh, from uh, South America and from Borneo, in fact, as well as Japanese environmental activists. So it was a real global gathering for three days. And at the end of a of it, they wanted Rainforest Action Network to sort of hit up a global coalition. And I said, well, to some extent we can, but for the most part, I want to focus on North America and getting our foot off the throat of the, of the rainforest. And that became kind of the, the, the approach. Uh, and our very first campaign was the Burger King boycott. Just a generic question. How did you like describe or promote the rainforest issue to 
both other environmental groups and to just kind of the general public. You know, how did how did you try to convince them this was an important issue? Because you it's know, the big, not immediate. The big NGOs at the time in, in the U.S. was, of course, World Wildlife Fund, Conservation International, and the Nature Conservancy International, right? And those were the three groups that did not come to my three-day strategy right. session. Right. Right. But NRDC came, uh, Greenpeace, even though they weren't working on rainforests, uh, were there, uh, National Wildlife Federation, Environmental Defense Fund, and quite a few other uh, environmental groups uh, were there. And, and the bulk of their focus, most of the groups were based in, or at least had a major office in Washington, D.C., and their, their rainforest work was fighting the World Bank. And we wanted to do bigger and broader things with our campaigns, hence the, Bur the Burger King boycott. And so um, I think it was personal diplomacy. I, I used to publish something monthly called the campaigner notes. And I would all call up the 10 or 15 most active rainforest campaigners and talk to them on the phone and find out what they were doing, put it in a little bullet points, you know, photocopy it and mail it around to people. And that was a, a very useful tool. Uh, John Seed from Australia, you know, was uh, uh, the Rainforest Information Center was already happening pre-Rainforest Action Network. And they published something called the World Rainforest Report, which uh, was really an important source of information back then, including to a lot of the scientists. Uh, Paul Ehrlich at Stanford uh, was a big fan of the World Rainforest Report, you know, and uh, Rainforest Action Network took over publishing it after a while, and the Earth First Journal, which which had quite large, you know, a print journal uh, publication and, and exposure around the country and the world, uh, you put a four-page insert in every issue, which was the World Rainforest Report. So we were able to really get the word out in in the choir uh, quite quite effectively. But the birthing of any organization is never one person or even Mike and Roselle and myself. It's a small team of people. And key on that team was a guy named Herb Gunther, Herb Chow Gunther, who ran the Public Media Center. And so we cut a deal with Herb early on, and they became our, you know, our public relations firm and advertising agency. And when we would do full-page ads in the New York Times and even the Wall Street Journal, uh, it was Public Media Center. Uh, that was helping us with that, and their sophistication was really important. We also did an inexpensive, if downright free, national media campaign, a print ad campaign. We had um, magazine-sized, full-page ads done, camera-ready copy on the issue. And we had fractionals, half-page, quarter-page, eighth-page, and we would send them around everything from Time Magazine, which did, you know, use them from time to time. When they hadn't sold enough ads, they would put them in for free. And uh, so our, our um, you know, we were punching above our weight, so to speak, uh, in terms of outreach and publicity campaigns. And then the civil disobedience and the uh, campaigning against Burger King caught a lot of attention as well. And at the point, some of that attention was waning. We started cutting deals uh, with our, our friends uh, in Hollywood and rock and roll celebrities. And the Grateful Dead in 1988 agreed to do 
a benefit concert for us at Madison Square Garden. You know, and at the point of Jerry Garcia starts embracing uh, your cause and your organization, and Jerry and I were doing the morning show on CBS and, and such things, uh, then, you, then you begin to reach a different segment of the media and you get outside of the choir, uh, but a lot of good people and a lot of sort of celebrity entertainment circles wanted to be helpful and that helped things spiral along through the late 80s and the 90s. You've mentioned the Burger King campaign a couple times and, and I have a, I put together a series of questions around that, but maybe my first question is, you know, a lot of groups at the time focused on like federal legislation or state legislation or the World Bank, but why did, why did y'all decide to target corporations, which is very much in brand's DNA at this point? Uh, versus other groups. That was a, it was a conscious choice uh, not a, not to focus on on say federal legislation and policy uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, at our three day strategy conference, which was just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, out in at Cronkite Beach in the Marin Headlands, the groups there wanted me to to locate Rainforest Action Network in Washington D.C. Several of them. And um, I thought, well, it doesn't have to be in San Francisco or the Bay Area, uh, but if you're doing international environmental work, at that time, Boston was a possibility, New York City certainly was, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, uh, in terms of the United States. But I also thought about, you know, maybe Flagstaff, Arizona, because I was missing my uh, time with, with the Hopi and the Pueblo tribes down there, you know, or but I stayed in San Francisco, but also that's in the era of, of you know, Jimmy Carter lost his uh, uh, bid for a second term. And that's really when we probably lost the chance to, to, to save the earth that we know and love, uh, because it came with 12 years of Reagan and, and Bush Sr. And we just knew the Reagan administration was not going to be an ally to save the rainforest. And so other groups were focused on that. Our, our added punch didn't feel to me like it was going to make much of a difference. And so uh, we, Rosella and I decided to take on corporations. Catherine Caulfield was part of the founding bunch, and she had just written uh, the book In the Rainforest, which was, was sort of a Bible at the day and still remains, I think, the best introductory book to the issue. Uh, and she, she didn't think we should focus on rainforest beef uh, because the tropical timber campaign, she was part of the architect of that in Europe because uh, she had lived over there. But Roselle and I overruled that and launched the Burger King boycott. It took us about 18 months to get them on one bended knee, and then they finally canceled a $35 million beef contract with Costa Rica, which is where they got the bulk of their frozen beef from the rainforest. And in the Burger King campaign, I, you know, there's there's an interesting, I don't know if you've seen this, there's an interesting write-up about the Burger King campaign and the nonviolent database, nonviolent action database at Swarthmore, um, which talks a, a lot of detail about it. And it seems like RAN worked a lot with like groups like Earth First and, and PETA, like it seems like in some ways RAN plays a, a, as a, a bridge between different movements and groups, and then also like a bridge with the communities in the rainforest and kind of bringing those campaigns to the, bringing those issues and campaigns to the U.S. And I'm and I'm wondering how, you know, how some of that kind of played out, how how it led to that. Yeah, I haven't I haven't read that 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 write up, 
there wasn't any close relationship with Pete at the time. I, I wanted to and would have liked that to happen, uh, but I don't really recall that being yeah. fundamental to any of, of the really early work. But uh, again, groups like World Wildlife Fund had field offices in rainforest countries. We made a conscious choice not to do that. You know, and our rhetoric at the time was there's two things you need to do to save the rainforest, get your foot off their throat and support the allies in those places. And that became our approach. So when other groups were setting up things like protect an acre um, or buy an acre of rainforest, excuse me, adopt an acre or buy an acre of rainforest, we set up one called protect an acre not adopt an acre or buy an acre. And so by an acre, it was, you know, support the allies down there, particularly indigenous uh, groups to do the work they needed to do in their own homelands. Right? So that we just had that philosophical difference of, of, of approach. And, uh, but we were, you know, a network and, and, uh, it was a loose affiliation. We had also started the RAGs, the Rainforest Action Groups, which were directly affiliated to Rainforest Action Network. And at one point, we had about 150 RAGs uh, around the world, but for the most part in Southern Canada and the United States. But there was a London RAG, there was a Melbourne RAG, there were you know various Rainforest Action Groups. And so we were looking for any anybody and everybody that we could pull in to this this collective effort, and we did you know a lot of circuit riding and lectures at, at at conferences and and on college campuses, and we you know put together this rainforest action group uh, approach where anybody who had the guts and gumption could set up their own rainforest action group and spin off as they wanted to. Rainforest Alliance in New York City which probably has triple the budget of Rainforest Action Network in San Francisco, uh, originally wanted to be the New York City office of, of Rainforest Action Network, right? And I, and I told Dan Katz, I said, look, you know, this is a big issue. And uh, we're not territorial here. Uh, the world needs more groups. You know, you could just set up your own group and run it, which he did. And to this day, I think he's still chair of the board of Rainforest Alliance. They took a different approach around certification, but again, we needed that multifaceted approach. You know, some groups were going to do policy work in the U.S. Other groups were going to focus on the multilateral development banks, like the Inter-American Development Bank and the African Development Bank and the Asian Development Bank and the World Bank. And other groups were going to do the civil disobedience, particularly around corporations. Though we also were happy to do civil disobedience. Uh, with the WTO and the World Bank and the IMF and 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 those aspects of the evil empire. I should say, I should have said this when I said the uh, brought up Burger King is the very first protest I ever went to in college was a Burger King, you know, yes. save the rainforest in, in the late 80s in <laughs> yeah. Boone, North Carolina. We would typically do the Burger King uh, protests at lunchtime, of course, right? That's when the trafficking is coming in, and there were a lot less drive-throughs then. People went in and out, and, and so we did a lot of street theater, theater, as Scott knows, you know, where we would have a life-size paper mache cow, and two people were inside of it, right? And one was the front legs and 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 the head, so to speak, and the other one the back legs and the tail end, 
and we'd have somebody with a, a basket of leaves in front of them uh, handing leaves and you would reach to the mouth of the of the cow pull the leaves in that was eating the rainforest and the person who was the rear legs had this little basket inside of styrofoam containers you know that you put your whopper burgers in and would shove them out the hind end of the cow well you know if that's parading back and forth of the People were happy to go across the street to Wendy's or some other place, you know, and and uh, we did that across the country. But the most of we were people in, in college campuses and a lot of Earth First activists. We didn't originally have our own grassroots uh, network, and so Earth First was the original grassroots network of Rainforest Action Network, and there was great camaraderie there. It was also building camaraderie with all of those other uh, NGOs, you know, NRDC and EDF and National Wildlife Federation and such, uh, and eventually even Conservation International and World Wildlife Fund and Nature Conservancy International, you know, we had pretty good relationships with. From time to time, I wanted to launch campaigns against World Wildlife Fund when they take a stupid ass policy in South America, you know, or Conservation International when they would sort of declare some silver bullet solution like debt for nature swaps that cut the deals on indigenous lands without consulting indigenous peoples. Uh, but that aside, there was a lot of camaraderie building. And one of the things that we did well at the advice of Herb Gunther at Public Media Center was we did a press kit in the old days when it wasn't just electronic. And who's ever seen an electronic press kit, you know? But these press kits were physical yeah, and they were shingled, so like a pocket folder, you open it up, and one of the headlines on the, on the, inside it were contacts. And we said, well, if you need to talk to anthropologists about the rainforest, here are you know, four really great people from these different organizations, including cultural survival at Harvard University and Survival International in the UK. Right, or if you need to talk about a river expert around hydroelectric dams, here's the inter the experts on that: Phil Williams from the International Rivers Network and people like that. And and so and we got that press kit out extensively to the press and also to the funders. It was a good fundraising tool, but it was very ecumenical. And so uh, Rainforest Action Network was ecumenical from day one, and you know was really looking to help build a movement and popularize that issue. And also, of course, to launch campaigns directly against the transnational corporations as, as part of our approach. Now, this was before, you know, like global warming, climate change became a, a huge issue. So how were you kind of approaching it? How were you convincing people that not buying a hamburger was gonna help the environment? You know, how could you convince them that something that was happening far away in the rainforest was really important to their lives? Yeah, well, I think we always had kind of, we need a healthy planet yeah. <laughs> approach. And we never wanted to, uh, you know, kind of say, shut down the timber industry and tropical rainforests and have it shoved off to uh, Siberia or the, the boreal forests of Canada. Um, yeah, and so we even encouraged groups in British Columbia to uh, connect to the rainforest tag that we had so popularized and have temperate rainforest groups. And so the Great Bear Campaign and, and groups like Stand, uh, you know, came out of, of, of that effort. Uh, and so that was our approach. Yeah.
So, Scott, do you want to uh, tell all of our listeners and viewers how to learn more about the Green and Red podcast and how to support us? Thanks for listening to the Green and Red podcast, folks. If you want to follow us on social media, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please go to our YouTube page and hit subscribe. And then if you want to become a donor or just make a one-time donation, to make a one-time donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the donate link. And then to become a, a regular donor or what is known as a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash greenredpodcast and join the, the large and growing donor base that we have. Thanks. Thank you. Share everything too. And uh, tell your friends. Uh, just shifting a little bit to the, the other part of the conversation we were wanting to have is, you know, we're seeing something like 18 million acres of, of forest are lost every year, which is, you know, estimated to be, you know, cause like 12 to 17% of global emissions. There's like mass species extinction. And so, I mean, I, I think the one question that I have for you is like, how do we, where do we go from here? How do we save what's, what's remaining as far as like forest communities in the forest? Particular passion, Scott. And, and um, you know, going back to the previous question, we tried to put a menu of those different related passions in that press kit. And mm -hmm. Catherine Caulfield was particularly good because she knew it so well from having written the book recently. So if it was about human health, we, we had a flyer in there about medicines that can only be found in tropical rainforests, like the rosy periwinkle, right, that treats ch childhood leukemia. You know, it used to be a death sentence, and then it became something like a 90% cure rate, only because of one flower, the rosy periwinkle, which they could not chemically synthesize back in the pharmaceutical factories of the north. Right. And so you had to continually go into the forest, you know, to get some of these substances or the curare vine. is not a toxin, but it's a muscle relaxant. that's also used in heart surgery, open heart surgery to relax skeletal muscles. So we had anecdotal stuff of that ilk in there. We also had species extinction. We had animal rights related issues, uh, you know, uh, uh, indigenous people's rights issues we had you know we reached out on so many different levels to so many different sets of people to give them an avenue of action on the rainforest that spoke to their particular passions and and that again was our conscious effort to build a broad-based movement mm -hmm. currently um obviously i think the environment has become a mainstream issue and you know everybody recycles and you know there are a lot of people, not everybody, but many yeah. people recycle. And we kind of get the idea that, you know, they're, they're kind of, I, I think, and the way I look at it, two kind of two approaches. You have one, which is what Scott and I think Randy, which is kind of target these big producers, the fossil fuel industry and banks and, and so forth. And then you have a lot of people, some of whom throw kind of a guilt trip on you, you're not recycling or whatever. And, you know, I just kind of wondered how you can kind of convince people, I'm not saying you shouldn't recycle, but convince people to go beyond, you know, that kind of personal choice and understand that this is a much bigger issue that involves more than throwing a, you know, a can into a recycling bin. Right. Well, we have to convince people that it's not only a much bigger issue, but in fact, as, as uh, Joanna Macy from the Northern California, one of the great whole systems, general systems theory thinkers and, and activists uh, used to call for the great turning 
and and uh, David Brower used to call it the great ecological U-turn, you know. And and Brower used to tell me a story about how you know if you're marching to the edge of the cliff and you're about to fall off into oblivion, the solution is somewhat simple: turn around and go a fundamentally different direction, right? And that is what industrial society and you know almost eight billion of us need to do, particularly the two billion over consumers, gr gross over consumers of humanity. Uh, uh, the scale of change that's required to save the planet that we largely know and love is, is far greater than, of course, recycling or buying a, a, an electric vehicle. You know, individual action, even millions of people doing individual actions somewhat separately uh, doesn't add up to anything close to what's required. And, and so I've, I've kind of boiled it down to, to three, three objectives. And I look, I look at all the different environmental groups and environmental initiatives from this perspective. Uh, and yes, it, it has become far more popular since it was, say, in the 60s and 70s, uh, but it's nowhere near getting the job done and we are, are in desperate trouble. The cascading sets of collapses, you know, I'm worried most these days about the demise of the insect population, right? If it's been a 70%, you know, decline in 40 years, that is scary, scary stuff, you know? And it, it, sh it never should be that there are more in the human animal herd, uh, including the animals we eat and ourselves, uh, we outweigh the mass, you know, of the wild animals, and we outnumber the wild animals, and that is so wrong. So part of my focus over the last two years has been with what's called nature needs half. We need to protect and set aside at least half of the oceans uh, where there's a moratorium on any form of industrial exploitation. We need to set aside half of every continent in terms of the terrestrial Earth and all the major islands. And, and a group of us, conservation biologists and myself, and we've done a study we published in bioscience two years ago where we laid out 846 ecological zones on terrestrial earth. And the logic is if you can protect half of, say, each one of them, you can save 90% of the species left on the planet. Well, that begins to be an authentic plan to halt extinction. We need this great societal U-turn to a more socially just and ecologically sane world, right? But particular steps need to happen. And one of them is we've got to get our foot off the throat of the natural systems of the planet. And if we want to stop extinction of species, that requires protection of habitat and migratory corridors. And that's all part of the plan. So I'm beginning to put that together on paper and gave my first speech this Earth Day on uh, a halting extinction. Finally, a plan exists, right? We didn't have that in the 80s and 90s or the turn of the century, but it's, it's there now. And that gives me some semblance of hope. But I mentioned, you know, this great U-turn is more than most people can stomach. I'll give you a little more specific detail. We need to radically decrease our energy use across the planet by, say, 70%. Well, that might mean 80% in the industrial north and 50% in the, 
in the less developed countries. We also need to, at the same level of a 70% reduction, and imagine 6% per year decline of material throughput into the industrial society global economy. That's mining and logging and, and god awful stuff, right? And that we've got to degrow where it's killing us, right? Now, what elected official is going to put forth a message like that? Because they want reelectability, whether they're Democrats or Republicans or the Green Party, they want reelectability, right? And you can't you can't put forth a message like you can't tell the ecological truth, right? That's only point number one. Point number two is about overconsumption reduction. You know, uh, there's got to be a major push in that arena. And point number three is is population numbers reduction. Humanistically, we need to get back to one or two billion, and then reassess what's the carrying capacity of this much damaged planet at that point in time, right? And so if your movement is not addressing those three arenas of, 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 of reversal, then you're pissing in the wind. You know, you're, you're, you're just an incrementalist and you're selling false hope in my mind. And I worry about a, a lot of the uh, main environmental organizations, you know, and it, it seems hopeless that elected officials are going to put forth that, that level of truth telling. Uh, now, I'm not against the concept of growth in the economy in its entirety, even though I'm a degrowth fan. But I make a distinction that I've seen hardly anywhere else. There's either pro-growth people, you know, like the good old Republicans and mainstream Democrats, you know, and, and certainly the captains of industry, they're all pro-growth. You know, or there's degrowth lefties and progressives, you know, particularly in Europe, the degrowth movement, if you don't know about it, uh, look into it, you know, uh, look it up, read their papers. It's really important work, right? But I like selective growth. Let's grow where we need to grow. We need to grow in the sense of more renewable energy. Of course, we want 100% renewable energy, but primarily we need to use 70% less energy globally. And, there, and, and the what's left should be 100% renewable. More important than that, and the climate change people here, I think, are selling a false message where they say, oh, 100% renewable energy will save the planet. No, it will not. You know, 100% ecological farming, transforming industrial agriculture into ecological farming globally, that soil builds, captures carbon in the soils, protects a lot more biological diversity, doesn't have runoff that creates dead zones in the ocean. There are 400 dead zones in the ocean from industrial agriculture, chemical runoff of pesticides and, and artificial fertilizers from fossil fuels, right? You know, I've got a seven point plan <laughs> uh, and, and, and it begins to address these things that would create that great societal U-turn, uh, but that's not what you—that's not what you get from the fundraising newsletters for most environmental groups, is it? No, not at all. So even the environmental movement, in my mind, is not telling the ecological truth as well as it can and should and must. Yeah, I mean, it—it it seems like a, a lot of the fundraising of the environmental nonprofit world 
it's 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 very much in sync with like the message that you would get from the Democrats, which is just yeah. like this moderate growth, et cetera, ec moderate economic growth or yeah, re-enter re the Paris Accords, things like that. Yeah. 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 Even if you look at the uh, renewable energy industry, I uh, from 2009 for about five years, yeah, when I first moved to Washington D.C. from California, um, I focused on on the the German renewable energy policy. It's called a feed-in tariff policy, and and I was kind of a cheerleader for that in the United States and Canada for them to to adopt the German approach to renewable energy, right? And and what I found is the wind industry doesn't give a flying whatever about the solar industry and vice versa. They each have their, their, they're in the world of business. It's not easy to make money in the world of business, right? It's not, right? And, and there's some do good in there for sure with most all of these renewable energy companies. But again, they're primarily trying to protect their business model. So if the current set of subsidies works for wind but not for solar, you know, the wind people don't give a shit that much, right? Sorry, and vice versa. And I just thought, well, that's not going to save the day, that approach. So, you know, where do you go to, to, to sort of get the job done and save the day? And I continue to come back to, well, at least you've got to tell the ecological truth as best you can and lay out the framework of a plan that might get the job done. It, it certainly is not politically viable right now uh, to look at a 70% reduction of energy use globally and material throughput from industrial madness. Climate change is not a problem in my mind, by the way. Climate change is a result of a problem of a bad technology choice. In simple terms, right, you go back to the late 1700s and then the uh, invention of the, the steam engine powered by coal or then subsequently the invention of the internal combustion engine powered by oil and gas, fossil fuels, right? Very few people, virtually one, thought back then of the unintended consequences that it would change the entire atmospheric chemistry of a livable planet, the only livable planet in, in our solar system, and in fact, that we know in the Milky Way galaxy and, and maybe the universe. Sure, there's probably others out there, but this is the only one we know about, right? And we're and we're, we're destroying it. And so I want to call on the people that hear this or watch this to think about the great societal U-turn to that more just, socially just uh, society, but an ecologically sane society. And the exciting upbeat part is the seven point plan, uh, you know, lays out kind of how you can do that. Point number one in it, and I'll try to be brief as I can here, but point number one, is a, what I call I like what I like to call a true cost economy. Okay, there's different labels for the global economy: globalization, capitalism, you know, uh, hideous torture capitalism, <laughs> you know, whatever your label is. But a true cost economy doesn't allow you to pollute and make a profit. You internalize those externalities structurally. So, a true changing the rules of the global economy is a must. And then, yes, of course, we need 100% renewable energy and 100% ecological farming. And nature needs half. We've got to set aside and protect and have the migratory corridors, right? But then you also, you also need technology policy and ecological literacy. 
People need to know how the world works. I prefer the term biospheric literacy, which means you look at the planet as a whole and at least know the basics of the life support systems or what some people, at least in Europe, call the planetary boundaries. That seven-point plan could get the job done, at least conceptually. I, uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious. And so you said you gave a, a speech on Earth Day, uh, I'm assuming around the, the seven-point plan. I'm, I'm wondering if you have any other plans to sort of roll that out. Or, or... Well, no, it's not, that speech was, was not on the seven-point plan. It was really on, on the, uh, just the fourth point about nature needs half. And it was about, uh, you know, finally, there's an approach that could halt the sixth grade extinction, right? And I'll, yeah. send, I'll send it to you. There's a link to it. Okay. We're, we're probably getting near the end of our time. Um, do you have any other questions, Bob? Um, no, I just want to, you know, thank you. We've done three shows pretty recently uh, kind of on this topic. Uh, Brian Peros talking about environmental justice and Helen Yost, who's fighting um, Tar Sands, and then the, the great Diane Wilson, who's on a hunger strike to try to stop the, the dredging yeah. in uh, Matagorda Bay in Texas. And... And now, you know, talking to you really, I think, kind of encapsulates all that. And we're, you know, I'm personally, I'm, I'm kind of bleak whenever I think about this stuff. You know, I, I live in Texas and, um, you know, we had this, this. That highly moral city of Houston, Texas. Yeah, which is the most progressive place maybe in America right now, which is really scary. Yeah. But, uh, um, you know, we recently had this crazy freeze. And the first thing that the politicians did was blame the wind industry, which, actually perform well and it's a, a minimal part of right. the overall energy grid yeah, I about that and there's no consequences i mean they lied they 200 people died yeah. they've done nothing about it they are you know going they've doubled down on deregulation and so it's it's kind of bleak so i'm glad that you know there are people out there like you know brian and and helen yost and Diamond, and you who are working on this because um you know it's it's obviously very grave and uh the the time is short so thank you now, the situation is undoubtedly bleak, right? Yeah. And, and, and you know, we're going to see more failed states around the planet. What frightens me most from a social justice perspective is industrial agriculture's fragility with, you know, weather system changes and droughts and floods and such. Uh, we're going to see... Um, uh, and fires. <laughs> you know, let alone the fires. But on croplands, we're going to see the droughts and floods increasing over time, and and the world is fragile in terms of food delivery globally, and and that's that's quite hideous. And so, um, you know, I'm not an optimist or a pessimist. I'm a realist, and realistically, we're marching to the edge of the of the cliff. And in some respects, we may already have been in. No, we're not only an overshoot. You know, we may be past some tipping points. But at the very least, one wants to go down swinging with a plan commensurate with the scale of the problem and the timing of the problem. And that means we've got to make major change in the next two, three decades uh, or, or we're toast. You know, the, as Mike Rizal says already, the ship's going down, right? Well, David Suzuki in Canada, who's a great thinker and, and I learn a lot from, gave a lecture, is it too late? And his bottom line statement was, you know what, we humans are not smart enough to know if it's too late. And so not knowing if it's too late, we damn well better get out there with bold changes and bold plans. 
and there's no time left except for big steps in the correct direction. And I, I'm a fan of, of whole systems thinking. And my, my simple version of that is the three E's, you know, ecology, social equity, and economy. They have to be in sync or you're screwed, right? And we could do another program on that in particular because that I, I've just sort of rewritten you know, just a couple of paragraphs to explain that. Uh, but when when the social change, when the social justice groups embrace that, the environmental groups embrace that, and economic business groups embrace that, I think we could pull together and uh, work that great change. Uh, on that note, I think I'm gonna, I, I think we should probably wrap. Uh, we've gone about an hour now. Um, Randy, it's been actually a great honor to have you on with us today. This has been a this has been a great episode, uh, folks. Uh, you've been listening to Randy Hayes, co-founder of the Rainforest Action Network, uh, executive director of Foundation Earth, longtime environmentalist, uh, uh, an environmental pit bull, in the words of the of the Wall Street Journal. And you will be able to hear this episode uh, not only on our regular audio podcast platforms, but it will it'll also be on YouTube. Um, and if you want to check out Green and Green and Red on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we are there all day, all night to check us out. And then if you want to become a donor, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast, or you can go to our website, greenredpodcast.org for a one-time donation and hit that support button. Um, Randy, it's been great talking to you today. Folks out there, stay safe, go out there and, you know, don't just change your light bulb or recycle, but, you know, get involved and, you know, cause a lot of trouble because that's what we need right now. Feels good. I've been arrested about 19 times. It's good for the soul. Yep, yep. I've been arrested about 15 times. It's totally, it's totally right on. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks. Thank you.